HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a full-service marketing and commerce platform that helps restaurants get discovered, make more money, and engage their diners. Join over 8,000 restaurants already using Bento Box today to deliver better hospitality. Visit getbento.com slash chef today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com slash chef. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Becca Milstein, co-founder and CEO of Fishwife, a tinned seafood company bringing ethically sourced premium and delicious tinned seafood to pantries across the U.S. Fishwife launched in December of 2020 and has been featured in the New York Times, Bon Appetit, Food and Wine, Vogue, and like 30 to 80 other (laughs) publications. You can find it at eatfishwife.com or in many specialty shops across the country. Welcome, Becca. Thank you so much, Allie. As a frequent listener, (laughs) I love, okay, so before we even get into anything, you know, you are a frequent listener of In the Sauce. It's true. Are there, has there ever been a question that I've asked or like a topic that I've brought up that you're like, ooh, ooh, I want to chime in here. There's something I want to say. I think there have actually been times when I wanted people to dig more into fundraising and capital and bootstrapping and just how they how people go about funding their businesses I feel mm-hmm. like people it's, do it's not a little cagey yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. it's a little cagey um but I feel like it's so so confusing to first-time founders speaking yeah. from personal experience yeah um so it's actually the opposite of what you asked me it's something that you did not ask um right but I'm always curious to know how people fund their businesses because it's such an important part of the whole thing, obviously. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, just jumping right in, you know, you bring up a really good point last week. I don't know if you heard Mark Samuel, he was on the show and he said something along the lines of, you know, not everyone had a dad who's a banker and went to Mm -hmm. Yale. 
And, you know, I was kind of like, hey, just raising my hand. Like I had a dad who was a banker and I went to Duke. Like (laughs) I just, I don't ever want to mislead anyone into thinking that, that where we're at is just a function of like grit and hard work because it is very much a function of that. And also graduating from college without debt and having access to capital or friends and family with capital. And especially, I think, um, you know, there's always a question of, you know, when you are raising, you don't really want people to know because you don't want to be quote unquote, like out there, you know, and you don't want your numbers all over the place. And there is something sort of like private to all of it. And, you know, there's a little bit of a, we're doing so well, we don't need money mm-hmm. kind of bullshit thing that yeah, totally. doesn't actually mean anything. Um, and I think our relationship with money in general, and especially as women is a little bit, you know, flawed. Um, yeah. so to your point, the more honest that we can be the better. Mm-hmm. Um, but even me, you know, I'm pretty open on these things. I definitely, that is an area that I do keep a little bit more, like closely breasted, I guess. Um, I mean, I I think that totally makes sense. Um, uh, And, you know, I think I lean towards transparency in a way that could totally be uh, a product of, you know, first time founder naivete. But, um, Mm -hmm. but I do think there's a way to talk about it in sort of broad strokes that just does illuminate um, you know, some of the things that are, that were so confusing to me, um, yeah. and are still confusing to me, but, um, yeah. you know, through countless conversations with advisors and peers, um, I do feel I've gained some, some clarity about some like fundamental questions about, you know, what is art? What is science? I think that's the line you hear from everyone mm-hmm. when you're fundraising is it's a mixture of art and science. And that's true. And just understanding like the parts where you really should lean into the art and parts where you really should lean into the science, I think is, um, yeah. can be key. I think also, you know, very early on, um, I was, you know, I was with another founder and I was raising like our seed round and we ran into someone who was kind of a potential investor, but not really. And he said, like, how's it going? And I was like, well, you know, it's been really interesting. Like, it's really interesting, the questions that people ask. And I feel like I'm learning a lot. And she, like, kicked me Mm. under the table. And (laughs) she was like, he wants to hear, it's going amazing. It's, like, crazy how quickly the money's rolling in. And I was like, but I'm not good at that. And she was like, but that's not for everyone, but for some people, that's how you have to roll. Yeah. You know, she was just, it was very helpful because I think to art and science, there's also like, who are you being transparent and authentic with? And that isn't everybody. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, it can't be because there is still, you know, despite all of these, you know, I think we talked about it a little bit, like everything on Netflix, Hulu and HBO right now is like a cautionary tale about a founder who lies their way to jail, you know, or in Adam Newman's case, like lies their way to like billions of dollars and no one seems to lose except for the people that work for him. Um, But, you know, you would think that maybe there would be a little bit of a reckoning with Mm -hmm. that sort of, you know, create the FOMO, LF, go, you know, go kind of hashtag rocket ship nonsense. But yet, you know, 
I think that's exact. I mean, that is exactly the the point that I'm making. Is I mean, I think it's true. We have it. We have built these cultures where raising a ton of money at a super high valuation from specific people and funds is super super celebrated. Um, and I think on the flip side, you know, bootstrapping is amazing, but bootstrapping business like ours is very very challenging, if not impossible. So it's like, we also have to look at the realities of yes, acknowledging our privilege, those of us that were, you know, just got a huge head start in that regard. So yeah, I think it's, I think it's important to be transparent where you can and just say, you know, raise the money that you need at a valuation that you can achieve and um, raise it from great people. And those, I guess, are like sort of the broad strokes things that I would say is like, So on a, you know, on a totally sort of different note, although, you know, definitely like cool, buzzworthy, et cetera, rather than starting with sort of the beginning of Fishwife, which by the way, I think, you know, I happen to be a huge tin fish person to the point where like several of my gifts for my birthday last week were either sardine related or like I got (laughs) a pair of socks that said tin fish. Like I am, I am your target demographic. I love, (laughs) I love love, it. Yes. Um, but you know, aside from sort of like, we will get to like the brand and the, and, and just it's beautiful and the idea and everything, but I do want to talk about sort of this most recent thing almost first, because you guys just launched a collab with Fly by Jing. Yes, we did. Um, yeah. Well, it actually does. Even this question takes us back to the origins of Fishwife um, because I reached out to Jing over LinkedIn I think in November 2020 um, and just was a huge fan of her company and thought what she was doing was amazing knew she was in LA so we started talking then and then kind of just became really close I'm not even sure yeah. what happened but at some point we just became super close um, and you know I mean Jing's business is amazing. probably yeah yeah it's amazing and it's probably like three three years ahead of where Fishwife is right yeah. now so having an, a very close ally like that is, you know, you cannot mm-hmm. measure the value of it. Um, so anyway, we've been friends for a while and we have eaten. <laughs> the first time we got together, we put uh, the chili crisp on. It was actually our smoked tuna. And it was amazing. Like something about mm-hmm. you know, the like Szechuan nemin quality, the spiciness with like the smoky sweetness of our products was really, really a, a unique flavor combination. Um, so we had just kind of been waiting for the right time to do it. And, uh, I would say, you know, I spent the first year in the business working really hard to scale up our production capacity. Um, because, you know, for a lot of the first year of the business, we were very hand to mouth on inventory. It was like, it would come down from the cannery and we'd ship it out and then need to do the same. So, you know, finally in early this year, we got to a place where we had we were flush with inventory, which was a dream, um, and had additional production capacity to start doing these limited collaborations. And obviously right. Jing was the first person um, that I wanted to do it with. So it was very simple. I will give away this trade secret. It was, it's, you know, it truly was taking our two best-selling products and smashing them together. Um, yeah. Not, not, a, not an extensive product development uh, process. But it was yeah, just but also so not not easy. I mean, maybe it's easier 
maybe it's, I don't know. I, I mean, everything's easier when it's not fresh. So yeah. I'm going to yeah. give that like a, but you know, I, I do think it's an, I mean, first of all, I love the story because it's not just a brand collaboration, but it's like actually like a true collaboration and like yeah. a connection between the two of you. I also read on LinkedIn that you guys share an office. Is that, is that yeah. right? Yes, it is the dream that I am currently living in, um, which yeah. is, so a close friend of mine is the chairman CEO of Acid League, which might yeah, sound out of blue, but, um, but he came to me looking to potentially open up a space in LA and, you know, proposed we do it together and then bring another brand into the fold. And again, Jing was the first person I thought of because she, right. you know, her team had had an office pre-COVID and then I think they've closed it down. So they didn't have a space they were working out of and were simultaneously building up their LA team. So anyway, mm-hmm. and Jing just gets shit done. So like the minute yeah. that I told her about this, like we had a realtor meeting or tour of like 10 right. offices the next week and it just went very quickly. And Everything that I thought it would be, it has been, Yeah, which is, you know, being in such close proximity to a company I admire hugely, a CEO I admire, and like a team that just is absolutely top notch Um, and seeing how they work together and communicate. um, You know, I was able to see that from the vantage point of creating a product together and launching it and also from just sharing an office with all of these brilliant people. So yeah. I like, you know, full, full, like accelerator program for me. No, it's amazing. (laughs) I mean, I, you know, I, we have a space, it's kind of the same vibe. I mean, it's not as, you know, we don't technically share it with anyone, but we definitely have other brands and other founders and other teams work out of here. They make content here. You know, I think for those of us who, it can be a lonely job, right? Yeah. And it can be, um, you know, frustrating. There's a lot of stuff that's just like, no one seems to be picking up. Trucks don't seem to be getting anywhere. Then you feel kind of bad because you're like, but the world, I'm just, all I'm doing is really making sauce. You know, like you go through this like whole like mental loop pretty <laughs> much like on the day-to-day basis. Yeah. And it's really nice to have other teams, especially you know, I, I mean, I would imagine, especially someone who is like that year or two ahead, it's kind of like, it's much better than having someone 10 or 15 years ahead, right? Yeah. Because like we were talking about before the recording, sometimes people forget, you know, they're like, I remember when we, blah, blah, blah. but you're <laughs> like, but do you, like, do you remember the pain? <laughs> like, yeah. You know? And also the ecosystem has changed. I mean, it changes yes. on a month to month basis. Like yep. I mean, if we're talking about D to C especially, but you know, the D to C landscape, the fundraising landscape, the retail landscape, like these things change, you know, every yeah. six months in some significant way. So yeah, that's really true. Well, I love it. And I guess the question going back to sort of like you said, it was very easy. You kind of did a smash up of your two best selling products, but um, you know, it's got to start somewhere. Like, did, did you bring, were you just like, hello, fisheries, like or canning companies, here's this and pack it in this instead of that. And there yeah. you go. Or, you know, was it, 
more complicated than that, I would imagine. Totally. Well, I will say, and I know you talk about co-packers a lot on this, um, mm-hmm. and the, the like complexities and nuances of working with co-packers, and there are um, unlimited amounts. But I, you know, I'm working with a cannery right now in Washington State, and they have just been totally aligned with like what Mm -hmm. they, you know, they see our vision and they have their own vision. Um, And they've just been incredibly amenable to doing like innovative new things with us and doing small batches. And, um, you know, I think we were one of their first sort of bigger co-packing clients. So Mm -hmm. they were kind of working out, you know, and I would say are still working out exactly how they want to be as a co-packer. Right. Um, but I think maybe where like with more established co-packers, and I can't speak from my own experience, but from hearing others, you know, they're these huge co-packers that are, you know, pumping out inventory and tr- do not have time to be experimenting with, with their, yep. mm-hmm. yeah, like we got super, super lucky in that regard. Um, and I'm like, yeah, so grateful for that. Yeah, um, it's interesting. I've been hearing a lot of people just saying either they've gotten kicked off their lines mm-hmm. because the co-packer is down to a very like skeleton crew and yeah. they just can't take the little company anymore. Even if you're like doing three to five million in sales, which feels like a lot for you, it's just not a lot for them. Yeah. Um, or, you know, friends of mine who've just had their prices raised like for the third time in, you know, six months and are having a hard time figuring out how to have a gross margin that's like, okay at all, you know? I mean, in your opinion, is there something, was it just luck or was there something that you feel you were looking for? What questions do you think are the right questions to ask, you know? alignment is sort of the key to all of this, Yeah. but how were you able to sort of figure out whether you were aligned? Yeah. Great question. And I will say we did get kicked out of our first co-packer. Um, we were working with a different cannery in the Pacific Northwest and they just, you know, their labor was cut in half. It mm-hmm. was the height of fishing season up there and they just were totally, totally inundated. Um, and, Unfortunately, we it was it was just a rather abrupt like we're not gonna have a product for you for the next three months and it was right the worst day I've had since starting the business yeah um, and we were super fortunate because I had started working on the smoked salmon product with this other cannery in Washington so I had started building that relationship and then you know I came to them and was like guys can we right. do two more skews with you yeah. Um, and thankfully, and this is like so luck, they were also, you know, they had, they were very much looking to build out this part of their business. Right. Um, so it was like, I mean, the stars so aligning in an yeah. insane way. So yeah, I think, I think I was in, so grateful to be able to work with them and, and be able to expand our relationship over an extremely short period of time in parentheses. Right right before the holidays nightmare right. of my life <laughs> um, but, and they were looking to bulk up their business so I think they were you know just down to put the pedal to the metal and figure it out right I do Which, think yeah. though you know yeah I think you know one of the things that we've learned you know there was a daily on the um you know how Ukraine is affecting food prices you know which of course is like you know 
insignificant compared to obviously like the human cost. But in our business, we do have to be aware of the cost of sunflower oil and the cost of fuel and the cost of, you know, everything basically. Right. And it's, there is a, you know, I do think the advice that I would give is even if you have a great relationship, even if you have a great co-packer, build a backup. Like the key Mm -hmm. to this game is really contingencies upon contingencies. For every ingredient, have three lined up just in Mm -hmm. case that one, you know, we had a tahini come in and it was roasted for like a minute longer than our normal tahini. And it was just too dark. It was just a darker brown. And so our golden tahini looked like mustard brown tahini, (laughs) you know, and then, so it just meant that, you know, A, we needed to do like color cards and stuff that, you know, everything you, everything that happens is like a learning experience. But if I can spare people the pain of the learning experience, it would be, even if you're comfortable right now and you're happy, find, find a backup for every ingredient, for every package, for every producer and agency and everything like have backups have backups and have contracts um Mm -hmm. I think that's you know of the many things that I think people don't tell you to do because it seems so obvious to them yeah um Mm -hmm. is having contracts with your with your commands and suppliers if they're willing Um, yeah it is always surprising when they're willing to like do things without one. I'm like, shouldn't there, isn't this like a little, like, yeah, it feels like something should be signed somewhere, but, um, yes, I think that's a really good, good point. Um, and, and unfortunately, sometimes you're going to have to go back to that contract and say like, Hey, Mm -hmm. reminder, you know, this is here. And they're going to say like, yeah, you know, why are you bringing up the contract? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you have to be like, because you are not in accordance with it, you know? Um, but, you know, those relationships are are important, clearly. Anything else before we take the break on, like, just building out the supply chain, like, before... Oh, my gosh. You know, There's so yeah. much. Um, yeah, I mean, I think... What would I say? Um Yes, get contracts where you can. Understand that those contracts will not be cheap to create with your council. So, you know, put aside five, six thousand dollars for that. Um, yeah. Was uh, there anything surprising about all? Like, were you, I mean, going back to sort of like getting ready to launch this thing, was, was the, was the front, the front end part is like, I always think of, you know, the graphics and the name and the vibe of the brand and everything. Was there stuff that surprised you about the back end? Oh my gosh. Yes. I'm, I'm just like, <laughs> where to begin? I mean, yeah, I think, um, uh, I, I would say mo- I was surprised at the willingness of people to hop on board and have been so, um, yeah, I think one thing I know, I know, um, one thing that was interesting about this business in particular was that, you know, when I was talking to canneries uh, in the U.S. mostly at, at the beginning, um, I was told constantly that it was a declining industry. And, you know, do mm-hmm. I want to look at a, at a pouch um, instead? And obviously mm-hmm. I was not interested in looking at that at the time. Um, but I think, you know, 
when you do see an opportunity like that, which obviously I saw an opportunity for tinned seafood to, you know, gain a huge foothold in the U.S. uh, in the way that it has in most other countries in the Mm -hmm. world. Um, And being able to, you know, convince your co-packers of that um, and really make them understand uh, what a massive business opportunity, you know, you are sharing with them. Um, yeah, I think, I think actually the biggest thing, and this is on the same note, but the biggest thing that has surprised me about, I mean, I would say supply chain particularly, but obviously all facets of running a business is like, it is truly all about relationships and absolutely human, human touch. And like, that makes sense for, you know, more of the social media and the marketing and, and, you know, like maybe, maybe even retail relationships feel more human driven, but the impact that your personal relationship with your suppliers and co-packers can have, um, can yield, you know, incredibly tangible business benefits. So, I mean, like my number one, like (laughs) advice, uh, to people starting businesses is just like form those personal relationships as the founder or the co-founder or what have you yeah. with like every single element of, you know, every single piece that the business touches, whether yep. it's press yep. or co-backers, but, you know, with suppliers, you know, we've been able to at times get rates that are super, super competitive because of, you know, I would say the relationship and in turn, like the promise of what right. the business can do. So, yeah. And I think to that point, you know, one thing is certainly the relationships. There is just something about having an actual human connection. And the other thing is like, these are also people that you are selling. Mm-hmm. You know, I think yes. there's a misunderstanding. I, I kind of say this a lot, but I think the founder in capital F has a misunderstanding that they have invented something incredible that the world is just going to want and that everyone's going to want to be a part of and that you'd be lucky to get to co-pack. And it is a very humbling experience when you realize, like, even if you have a cult following, it still doesn't mean anything to some of those people, right? And so I would say that the relationship is key, but also, like, you are these are also your customers, even if you are paying them, right? Like everyone that is touching this business is looking to the person with the vision, Mm -hmm. which is ultimately you, um, to, to keep them excited about what you're building. And I think that's why it is tiring. And that's why, you know, we need to build in some real downtime because, you know, you're constantly like energizing and constantly regrouping and constantly bringing someone back into the excitement, you know, and it's like a whack-a-mole game a little bit. Yeah. Um, I mean, one, one last thing I'll just say on that is, and it kind of goes back to the beginning of our conversation, knowing who uh, you are kind of quote unquote selling to and knowing the people that you have to be kind of selling to always and the people that you really have to be transparent with always. Um, I think that's a very key and nuanced mm-hmm. uh, dynamic that we all have to navigate. But like, yeah, you know, your lawyer, you do not have to sell. I mean, this is just me right. saying, but you do not have to sell your lawyer. You're paying them. No, you should be totally <laughs> honest with your lawyer all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but yes, I think even you can get, 
you again, it's what you said, Ali. It's like you can totally think I'm paying this co-packer for a service and that's that. But from the beginning and for the many years you're engaged with yep. them, you want them to stay on board and to fight yeah. for you to get line time and for fight to fight for you to get, you know, in my case, yep. salmon. Um, yeah. So. I mean, exactly. You want your salmon. I want um, salmon. <laughs> we're gonna take a quick break and then we're gonna come back and back up and like talk about the beginning of the company and all that. Um, so we'll be right back. Did you know that over 70% of diners research a restaurant online before ordering from or going in person? Your digital front door is more important than ever. Let Bento Box design and build you a beautifully branded website. Bento Box websites provide sleek design and seamless content management, creating impactful first impressions and converting visitors into customers. And with built-in commerce and marketing tools like online ordering, gift cards, automated email, and more, you can also grow your revenue and keep your diners coming back. Join over 8,000 restaurants that leverage Bento Box to power their digital presence and deliver great hospitality. Visit getbento.com slash chef today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com slash chef. This episode is supported by HRN business member Food Karma Projects, dedicated to community building by creating unique food events that showcase the best local food, chefs, beer, and wine. Get fired up for the return of Brisket King NYC to taste the very best brisket, pastrami, brisket tacos, sliders, and more. It all takes place on Wednesday, April 20th from 6 to 9 p.m. outside at Pig Beach in Gowanus, Brooklyn. To purchase tickets or for more information about this Meat Lovers Fest, visit brisketking.com. Food Karma Projects supports HRN's creative educational reporting and storytelling that drive conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. I'm back with Becca Milstein from Fishwife. Okay, so backing up a bit, we kind of started now and we're going back to the beginning. So you just were a, a tin fish lover and thought to yourself, how come this isn't like, how come you look at other countries and there are all these beautiful packages and here we don't and that was that? <laughs> not exactly no what say. happened tell me what happened it's a really funny story um I mean aren't they all but I was living <laughs> with a very close friend uh Caroline during during COVID and this is like peak you know beginning beginning COVID so mm-hmm. we moved in together in March 2020 mm-hmm. um and you know during COVID you're locked up you don't have a lot to do. You don't have a lot to talk about. Right. Um, sometimes, you know, strange objects take on a life of their own. So we had been eating a lot of tinned fish, you know, like just obviously during COVID, uh, when you are not walking down to the sweet green on the corner um, right. and you have to be buying, you know, ostensibly shelf stable food is, is the way to go because you don't know if the grocery store will be crazy. You're trying to limit those trips, et cetera. So right. We were buying and eating a lot of a lot of tinned fish. And as a consumer, I was totally the average American, loved, loved tuna fish sandwiches. But beyond that, um, you know, I would say 
I had traveled to Spain. I had lived in Spain during college and was exposed to conserve us and how like magical and beautiful that the culture was there. But other than that, it had not been a huge part of my life. Um, but I was raised on sardines. <laughs> I just want to throw this out there. I was told that sardines were like magic and that they have RNA, which I don't even know what that oh means, but I still remember my mother saying that to me. And just as a completely random side note, I went on this outward bound trip and it was like 38 days on a 13 foot sailboat with like 12 other kids. Wow. And I was the only one on the boat that ate sardines because they all didn't. And I came back and I was like, I was like glowing. I was so freaking radiantly healthy. And it was, I just, I don't know if it's because they made us jump in like the water every day, which was, you know, our only means of like sanitizing ourselves. But I just want to share that. So I, I just feel like you should know that about me as you tell you you know you just gotta know that like I'm bursting here with love (laughs) and like I shared it a little at the beginning but I really do I really do love fish that is canned I it's like I eat it right out of the can I don't need it mixed with anything I don't need it on it on a thing Mm -hmm. I just and so I'm picturing myself in COVID because I think I also ate it every single day and I tried to not have tuna every single day because, you know, that made me nervous. So I had yep, a lot of yep. sardines. Okay. No, Fee. I mean... Okay, I'm done now. You can go back to telling the origin story of your company. I just no, need no. to let you know. I love to know that I'm talking to my target audience. It makes me yes. feel very, very, very Good. confident. You're locked and loaded. We are aligned <laughs> now. So you're in COVID. You're eating tin fish. We're you're, eating tin yeah. fish all the time. We're also cooking. I just have to point this out. We were eating this trout from Costco and we were mm-hmm. like weirdly obsessed with this beautiful, it was just these beautiful full fillets of trout. Um, and we really were just eating them once, you know, once a week and just talking about them and, you know, inordinate <laughs> amount. Um, right. You can imagine. <laughs> peak COVID. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, I say that mostly because it, that trout ended up being the trout that we have in our cans today, which is very, very cool. Oh, that is very um, cool. But going back to the origin story, me and Caroline were literally on a hike. We were doing a lot of hiking, bouncing back and forth business ideas and literally just came to tinned fish. Um, what were you doing before this? I worked in the music industry for about four and a half years. I know it sounds, right. you know, it sounds very unrelated, but ultimately, um, like along with making very tasty products and building some really wonderful supply chains, obviously the the brand for this company yeah. has been um, huge, very yeah. powerful, and that's what I did in my in my past life. Yeah, no, the brand is crazy good. I mean, the graphics are amazing. The vibe is amazing. The name is amazing. I mean, you crushed that. Thank you so much. It was definitely the funnest part for me personally. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, we came up with this idea and we're just calling our friends on the ride home from this hike, um, asking them if they thought, you know, we called all all of our like hip foodie friends, right? Our, like trendy, trendy gals. Um, and we were just getting like a unanimous thumbs up. And we just went home and drank a lot of wine and ate a lot of sardines. I mean, there's a picture of us on that day. Oh, <laughs> I love <sorry>. that. <laughs> yeah, it was just, I mean, it was just honestly such an obvious 
obvious idea once we landed upon it. And right. I think the thing that drove that drove me to get it out to the world so quickly was just like the thought that, wow, this is so ridiculously obvious. There must be a hundred people working yep. on tin fish companies right now. And it turned out there was only one and that brand uh, scout has become, you know, some of my closest allies and friends. Um, yeah. I mean, and- that's, you know, that's the classic sort of Vita Coco Zico, you know, they needed each other to build this category. Yep. You know, I mean, you're not doing that with, you know, Bumblebee. Bumblebee, right? <laughs> yeah. So um, I think that that is also a very good takeaway. You know, someone said like collaborators or compatible mm-hmm. or oh, something. Yeah. Com- yeah. Compatibles or something. There was like some yeah. word where like, you know, because there's like, for instance, there are just some categories where there just seems to be a lot, you know, like sparkling beverage right yeah. now. And, you know, and, and, a lot of them are just like super friendly and, you know, sharing resources. There's a cap for every bottle. You know, there's, I think this winner take all mentality ridiculous. is just, it's ridiculous. I mean, there are lots of consumers and there's lots of pockets of consumers. And going back to your point from earlier, you know, when we talk about sort of the money piece, um, you know, it, is there likely one that's going to get bought by someone sooner? Probably. You know, if you look at like the hydration, right? The liquid IV kind of was like the first one to get snapped up. And, yep. you know, there, there, there is some validity. To there that. is some truth to some of it, but it's so early yeah. in all of the life cycles of all these businesses. And it's hard enough that, you know, without having sort of weird vibes with another company. I kind of wish there was someone else doing what we were doing because it would <laughs> it'd be fun, you know, to like just have someone that we could be next to on the shelf. But um, totally. alas, that totally. is not our, that is not our problem. <laughs> um, so you, it was, it felt really obvious. That's the best, you know, when the puzzle piece just kind of fits in. Yep. And then were you just immediately starting thinking about names and what it was going to look like and the vibe and all that? Was that yeah. just like your brain just went into you oh know, my creative God, yeah. mode? Yep. Yep. Just, yeah. Immediately obsessed with it. And like, I would say the first thing that we did, which I think is the common way to go, but for people that, you know, don't think about it this way, like I just spent a month, maybe two, just talking to every single entrepreneur I could get yep. my yeah my hands on. Um, and one of those entrepreneurs was, you know, my friend Greer, who works at or works or runs this uh, amazing textile company called Block Shop with her sisters. And this does have an, uh, does, does have a meaning to the end of it. Um, yeah. She was the one that uh, found the found the word fishwife. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, just like having those conversations, I mean, obviously that conversation was incredibly impactful, but yeah, you know, you start really wide just talking to, again, like a textile company, which has nothing on the out, you know, from yeah. the outside to do with tinned fish. But, um, you know, Greer is again, one of my very closest friends to talk to, you know, I mean, she's a very close friend, but we also talk about marketing all the time and like strategize yeah. together. Um, yeah, no. And I, I think that go, that's another like really good point of advice. It does seem fairly obvious. Most times, you know, like I, I'm sure you've done something like this, but I, te- I give like, 
I'm like a guest lecturer, you know, whatever entrepreneurship classes and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I always start by saying like, what are your ideas so that we can actually like make use of the next hour and a half rather than me just like talking. And they're usually very reluctant. And I'm like, Hey guys, you're like, no one's going to steal your idea. Like you got to stop like caging it because what you need to do is talk a lot and ask a ton of questions. And if you are worried that like the person next to you in your class is going to like somehow take an idea out of your head and make it and then make it better than you, then you probably are onto the wrong idea. Yeah. Like let's just, just talk, you know, and just ask and just open it up because I think a lot of times people don't do what you did because they're, they're nervous but, you know, don't be nervous. Yeah, I think, you know, one of my closest advisors, um, Adam Eskin from Dig, I, I, had a, I had a copycat and I was, I was upset about it. Um, mm-hmm. And I called him to talk about it. And he said something that is the truest, which is, it is all about execution. The idea itself is worth yep. literally nothing. So, yep. I mean, exactly. whenever you have, and I know all of my founder peers, all of us have, you know, one or multiple copycats yep. that feel really totally. you know, kind of painful. Um, but at the end of the day, it's just like that should just only drive you to make your company yep. so much more, the more interesting and, and stronger um, because those people, it's all about I remember, you know? Yeah. I remember when, you know, I had a cooking school for eight years and in like year six, someone literally almost took the exact name took our logo, mm-hmm. built a kitchen that looked exactly like ours, basically copied our class schedule. Ugh. They had come, they had taken like 15 to 20 classes at Haven's Kitchen. And then, and I was just, I felt like I was so angry mm-hmm. and so upset. And I had a friend look at me and she said, there could be a Heaven's Kitchen, mm-hmm. literally next to you like on the same block, six feet away. And you would walk in there and maybe you would think, huh, this is weird. It's the same. But after like 30 seconds in there, you would not feel the same energy. You wouldn't feel the same like commitment. You wouldn't feel any of the stuff that makes this place what it is. And it's, I've taken that. And then, and then she was like, you have, it was Tuesday. She was like, you have until Friday to like, get over this. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, okay. So I I was like on Thursday, I was still like seething. And I was like, I have until Friday. Like I have until end of day Friday. And, you know, she was like, fine. And then, you know, I, I processed it and it was okay, but it's, I've taken that into the brand. Like yeah, it's kind of the annoying, like, well, clearly you're onto something, but it's more than that. It's more than like the competition means that you're onto something. To your point, the idea, even if you start with the idea at the same time, a lot of people have the same idea at the same time, right? That's why we have like 18 things about Uber right now and WeWork, right? They're all the same. It's, but one is completely watchable and the other is sort of painful, right? To your point, like it's about the ongoing living, breathing company that you're creating, that ongoing, you know, connection with the consumers, the consistent research that you're doing, you know, 
learning more about who they are and why they like you and what they want from you. And, you know, obviously in your case, there's like this, that intangible sort of like brand factor um, that people, if it's not there, it's very hard and it, and you can't really pay for it, yeah. you know? So, okay. Going back to, you know, you started with direct to consumer, you do have retail, like you are in stores. Did you have a strategy? Were you thinking about, you know, what you wanted, what you wanted this to build out like, and, you know, where, where did you, did you hire someone? Like what, where were your sort of intentions around, you know, building out a team and a plan? Yeah. Great question. Um, so obviously a million things change over the course of, of running a business. Um, Mm -hmm. but I will say our distribution strategy has really not wavered at all. And I kind of, I mean, you actually are a great example of a business that, you know, it's, it's a totally different thing. And the place where you started was not, okay, let's get this D to C thing going and juice that for all we can and then move on. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, that wasn't even an option for me. Exactly. So, you know, sometimes your product just determines it for you. You know, we're really fortunate to have a product that is, uh, you know, not only has a four to five year shelf life, but also is like wartime food. So it can't be, Mm -hmm. I think we've had one smashed tin and I was like, did someone run this over? Um, Right. (laughs) It's, you know, made Uh. made for, uh, you know, the battlefield. So it's very, very durable. Um, But you know, the plan from the beginning was always start online. Um, you know, obviously tried and true. It's such a fun way to, to build a community, to like be speaking directly to your customer all the mm-hmm. time and learn so much from them, all that good stuff. And you get all the data from D to C, et cetera. So to me and for our product, it was, it's quite, it was quite obvious that was the way to go. And mostly, I mean, when you say start online, like mostly just organic or did you start with like an ad strategy from the beginning? Like, were you like, we need to build awareness or were you like, we need to just like start and see who's buying it and see like, what was that plan a little bit? Yeah, totally. So I would say as a person, um, I am, I do lean, I I do (laughs) lean as a person, (laughs) as a human on this earth. Uh um, I definitely, uh, for better, for worse, lean quantitative. Uh, excuse me, qualitatively, uh, right. is how instinctually, I think, um, you know, know. instinct has driven the entire growth of this business, (laughs) which is, you know, you hire, you hire for the, for the quantity, for the quantity. Um, so I mean, we, I would say we haven't done any paid advertising to this date, um, which, you know, not everyone has the, I guess like, I mean, not everyone has that luxury from, I guess, just like an organic, traction perspective and because you got really good really good PR very early on and very you know I think the brand speaks to that and like the the you know the product definitely you had like foodie people yeah really into it from the beginning and that's a very strong that's a strong crew it is a strong strong crew so yeah Yeah. i mean just from the beginning targeting the journalists that were writing about the space um targeting the influencers uh that you know i thought would be interested in this product and then i think i feel like i should i should i don't have an instagram (laughs) but 
If I did, I would be a very, I, I would influence for you. Hopefully, make one, and then you'll get all the free fish I know. you want. My team would be like, wait, you just made an Instagram so that you could talk about oh. Fishwife? Like, that's weird, yeah. Honestly, justified. Um, <laughs> no, if you serve it at your dinner parties, that's, you know, that's influencing as well. So, yes. you're good. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think just like, I knew what our target you know, incepting customer base was going to be. And, you know, a lot of those people are my friends. They're like super, they're cool girls that, you know, live in metropolitan areas and like go Mm -hmm. out to cool little wine bars. And, you know, it was pretty, pretty clear that that, that group was going to respond well to the company. So yeah, you know, just, and, you know, thankfully those people are, they talk, they talk a lot. They are Mm -hmm. very vocal advocates and, um, and, you know, we were just really lucky to have those people on our side from the beginning. Um, yeah. And a question about that, like, I'm curious because are they talking about the sustainability aspect of it? Or have you found that that is just a nice attribute to have over here on the right, but it is not the main thing that people are talking about? Just a question. I, yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, I think... The, the the thing that I have found in, in running this business and being in the seafood industry is that I would say just the overall general public's um, sophistication of understanding around seafood sustainability has a very long way to go. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, we've been lucky to, you know, be able to educate, not not to be preachy, but, you know, to, to no, help yeah. people start to understand certain aspects of seafood sustainability that maybe they haven't in the past. Um, right. I think, you know, generally, uh, aquaculture has gotten a, like a pretty ridiculously bad rap, like people just painting with way too broad a brush, um, about, you know, farm raising. Right. I mean, for us, it's kind of like, you know, is it recyclable? Like that is not the actual right question. Yes. Yes. Right. About when you're talking about packaging sustainability, but by the time we explain, emissions and water use, they've walked away. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think part of my question is like, you know, you have all these, you have the brand, you have a really tasty, delicious product. You have something that, you know, is like great from like a pantry building and like a longevity, like there are all these different things that you can talk to and you have a really, you know, thoughtfully sustainable, you know, product, you know, it's hard to talk about all of those things in the same breath. And so I'm just, I was just wondering if, you know, the virality of it, were you surprised that people didn't care as much as you thought they would? Or, you know, I don't know, you know? Yeah. No, I think, I mean, I think that people don't know exactly what questions to ask at this point. Um, And I, to me, it seems really like an incredible opportunity that we um, will hopefully be able to be a, a big part of education around um, mm-hmm. like what sustainability really means going forward. I think, I mean, I have no um, problems admitting that, you know, I am not a marine biologist and I did not right. come from, you know, a major uh, certifying body or um, it's not the industry that I was from. So I think the tact that I have taken is just surrounding myself with, with those people. Um, and I think as the company, you know, continues to roll out new products that, you know, each of which have 
really, really interesting stories behind them. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we'll be using those products as educational platforms to talk about, you know, different areas of seafood sustainability. So like for our salmon, you know, people do not know that one of the main questions to ask around salmon farming is, you know, what are the components of the feed ingredients? Um, Right. I mean, just people just, how can you expect to know that? Yeah. Um, So, I mean, working with a company like Quarry Arctic is, is the company that we work with for our salmon, you know, they're doing really, really incredible work in the responsible aquaculture space from all angles. But, you know, I like to zoom in on the feed that they're using, which is a mixture mm-hmm. of, you know, is fermented microalgae, um, which is, you know, the the source of the huge, the really, really high omega-3 content in our salmon. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then for the marine and I see like I'm already getting to a place where I'm probably losing some people. No, but I mean, I think it's interesting because it it does lead to sort of the innovation question, right? Like you're, I mean, I know with us, you know, we're evaluating obviously what the co-packer can handle. It can't be too sticky because we don't get enough through the pipes. We would like to use ingredients that aren't like very hard to get because of things like supply chain, you know, deficiencies or discrepancies or difficulties, Um, and then there's also just sort of like the color that would look pretty on the shelf next to our other colors of sauce. So, you know, does that play, does that play a role in your innovation, Mm. you know, planning, you know, the the story behind the fishery or the story behind the particular fish? Yeah, no, I think it, it totally, it totally does. Like, I mean, I think about, um, you know, with the with the three hero products we have right now, they all have really interesting sustainability stories. So like, and 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 you know, reveal a new layer of you know what does seafood sustainability mean? So like with our tuna, it means obviously we're we're catching hook and line in a in a well managed fishery, which is the North Pacific. So you know, right. a well managed fishery. What does that mean? It means that there's you know there's data, there's really good data on the health of the of the you know, of the population of that species that we're looking at. And, right. you know, we're using a, a catch method that is, you know, viewed to be the most sustainable catch method. So that's a very different story than our salmon. Um, and again, yeah, it's really exciting because we get to use these these products that have entirely different origin stories that t- both yeah. taste incredible um, as platforms off which we can, you know, help people begin to wrap their heads around the insane complexities of, of, seafood sustainability. Yeah. No, I mean, it's all very, very cool. We have a couple more minutes, but I want to go back to something you said too, because, you know, you definitely started online. You started with this like hardcore group of like people who like tin fish. And then, I mean, you are in retail stores, Yeah. but you know, it felt to me when I was looking through the store locator, it felt like that cool cheese shop on your corner or like the, that, you know, the shop that sells like all those fun, cool sort of, you know, artisan products from different places, like pretty branding, you know, cool kind of not gifty necessarily, but a little bit more specialty, not necessarily like mass grocery. Is that, was that a plan? Like, was that part of that distribution strategy or were you sort of like, wow, there are all these places that like actually carry tin fish. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, I think, yep. It's all, it was all part of the master plan. Um, (laughs) I mean, I think there is something really special about, um, you know, like building up 
your company and your reputation and your community incrementally. So like, I think for us, that meant, and, and a little bit of a scarcity thing. It's like, no, you cannot find our products at Whole Foods and Sprouts Mm -hmm. yet. Um, Right. That is, you know, that is the the long-term vision. Um, But I think I mentioned this to you in my note, uh, the idea of making a household brand yeah, um, which is it's, something I was a lot actually, longer than people think. It takes yeah. a lot. I was talking to Ian from Three Wishes about this, and it really what he said really resonated with me, which is just you cannot flip a switch and have a household brand. Like you think about yeah. all these brands that we love, like Ben and Jerry's and Stacy's and all. You know, you know they took years and years and years yeah. to establish their foothold in our homes. Well, I think that's part of you know. I, I mean, I, I think I quote Miguel probably every every episode, but you know, he always sort of goes back to like it having a brand that is bigger than what the business is. Yeah, is a great place to be because it means that you know you are creating momentum. It's also the more expensive place to be. It means that your gross margin needs to be stronger. It means that you're probably going to have to raise more money because you're going to have to build the business to fit into the brand, right? It means your sales are probably not caught up to, people always think you punch above your weight kind of situation. And it is the better of the two problems to have. Um, And the other side is, you know, you have a big business and you don't have a brand really to speak of, you're very quickly going to become a commodity or, you know, like you said, there isn't that sort of like soul behind it. You know, that said, those of us who are sort of like, we feel like we're building these brands and, you know, we are getting traction and, you know, it starts to feel like, oh my gosh, I totally, like, I see that everywhere. Like you guys are everywhere. You know, that kind of feeling. Yeah. Um, We have a very long, long way to go. And I think that when you try to buy it, whether that's just like a massive investment into Instagram ads, or it's a massive investment into glowing, you know, going global with Whole Foods day one. Yeah. It's very, very hard because you haven't you haven't figured stuff out yet. It can happen. People have done it, especially second and third time founders. But you know, part of the reason I think Ian's right about you know how why it takes that long is because you come out of the gate with something, but you don't know yet why people love it. Yeah. Who who are the people that love it and why and how are they using it and you know what what's making them stick with you. And until you start really understanding that, you can't really market correctly. You're just kind of throwing things into the awareness bucket, you know? And I mean, we're still, you know, it's, this is our fourth year now on the shelf. I mean, our second year national, but, you know, we're still every day struggling with, you know, what do we want to put on the front of our pouch? Mm-hmm. What's the most important thing to people? What do we want to lead with in, you know, in our messaging? I don't know that we're anywhere close to figuring that out. I keep thinking we are, and then it keeps <laughs> it keeps like slipping through my fingers. Yeah. Um, and I and my guess is that that's a ten year curve, and that's why you need money because you're likely not going to be profitable for the first part of that if you are doing experiments and trying to figure it out, unless you happen to have like phenomenal gross margins. 
um, you know, which which can happen. But which can happen sometimes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which can happen, which is cool. Um, okay. Before we head off, you know, one thing you wish someone would have taught you or told you, what's, you know, you were sort of in touch with a lot of founders and mentors, you know, what do you keep hearing over and over again that you just keep reminding yourself or you think is sort of like the, the you know, most important or the negative, like what's something, you know, not to do? Yeah. I mean, I think a big part of it is, yes, I would say the like value of your, this is not new, but your founder network um, cannot be measured and they will those are, I think it's the strongest asset of, of this business because I feel I have, you know, many of the best, many of the best folks in the game, um, helping, you know, helping navigate the way. Um, so I think, you know, I definitely ask for advice a lot, Mm -hmm. probably more than the average person. Um, and I think just knowing, knowing, I, I do think that is in my experience, it has been an incredibly positive way to start a business. But at some point, understanding that um, you're taking all that information and distilling it and finding what is your personal philosophy. And you really do have to trust that because at the end of the day, it's so, it sucks. It really does. But there's no one that, you know, is living your life and in your shoes and, you know, has the the desires that you have for what your life and business look like. So, yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great point. And I think also, you know, we hear so much like people are like, tell us about social nature. And I'm like, first, tell me about your goals and tell me about your product. Like it's, it's so product and category and distribution network specific. It's so like all of these things, there are some, you know, principles, like almost like physics of businesses. Like you should try to have XYZ margin and you should not do XYZ, like make an unsafe product. (laughs) Like there are some like fundamentals, but there's a lot that's just sort of, again, the cap to the bottle and, and the, and the founder and the market fit and all of those things, you know, and, and the category for sure. Um, all right, Becca, was it, was it everything you hoped it would be? Oh my gosh, everything and more. I can't wait to <laughs> listen. Well, actually, I'm, I don't know if I will listen to my I own know, it's very, I know, it's very hard to listen. I have a hard time listening. And going back to the ones that I did in like June of 2018, when I was like, what is business? Like, what is a product? Like, yes. I really, I um, I kind of like cringe, but you know, so it's it uh, amazing. All right, any any one you want to shout out was like your favorite episode? <laughs> like since you are such a listener. Yeah, I will say I listened to Noah's from Ruby. Uh-huh. And it just like, I was like, oh man, this is my type of founder. Um, and yeah. I like hunted him down. And I think we have a call this week. Um, I mean, it seems like everyone loves this guy. So good for you, Noah. <laughs> but I just, <laughs> no, that's yeah. so funny. Um, that's adorable. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's, um, he's, he's, he is all of that. Um, he's adorable. Um, I just saw him last week. All right. Anyway, Becca, thank you so much for coming on. Um, everyone go to eatfishwife.com. Um, I know I have a 
plan for a dinner party with like lots of tin fish coming up. That's just in my head now. Armin, as always, thank you for engineering. And I'm sorry that I went a little over on this one. And listeners, um, thank you. You guys really liked the last couple of weeks. That's awesome. I'm thrilled. Thank you for listening. I hope it's helpful. Always feel free to DM me with like recommendations for other guests or, you know, questions that you wish I had asked. Um, I really do, you know, I read everything in LinkedIn, so I don't have an Instagram, but I do, um, I do read everything on LinkedIn. So I will be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.